Wow, I almost forgot to turn myself on there. <laughs> I, uh, it's a privilege to fill the pulpit here at Newton Bible Church because I know, I know how much you all love the Word. And we have a man in this pulpit week in, week out who uh, I feel like exemplifies 2 Timothy 2.15. He lays the Word straight. He's a diligent workman. And I will do my best for us this morning to fill that spot, but... Um, Fear not, Matt will be back next week. And uh, if he's hesitating on the slopes in Colorado, I will drive out there and bring him back <laughs> as need be. Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we need to hear from you now. As we look into the word, your word, Lord, give us ears to hear. May your spirit do his work in our hearts. Teach us from your word, Lord. Let your spirit teach us now, Lord. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if I were to ask you whose name would you guess occurs most frequently in the New Testament, you probably wouldn't have too much trouble with that question. You would go, well, that's got to be Jesus. That has to be the most frequently occurring name in the New Testament. And you'd be right, 1,100, yes, I had to look, 1,158 times Jesus' name occurs. If we continued family feud style and said, well, what about the next five? Who do you think would be next? Okay, y'all peeked at your bulletin and you said, oh, it's got to be Peter because we're talking about the call of Peter. You'd be right, Peter's name occurs 160 times Without that help, I think I might have guessed Paul because he kind of takes over about Acts 9 and it's a lot of Paul in all of those letters. Uh, I think I might have guessed Paul, but he's actually less than Peter, just, just a few, 156 times, 156 times his name occurs in the New Testament. After that, it gets more challenging, doesn't it? That's the top three, Jesus, Peter, Paul will continue just for entertainment's sake. Fourth most common name, what would that be? You know, I think maybe a disciple, an associate of Paul. And the answer is John the Baptist. John the Baptist. John the Baptist, 107 times. Five and six are just outside the zone. You're thinking people, and number five is actually Satan. Satan's name occurs 81 times in the New Testament, and sixth, sixth is Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate. These would be interesting, uh, be interesting uh, person to study, I would think. Probably not an example to follow, but a, a life to observe, uh, name that frequently. So I don't know about you, but when I came across that, I was kind of a little bit surprised that Peter you know, was so uh, prominent, so frequently named. It was more than I, than, I, than I thought, and I got to thinking, you know, he's really more prominent than I, than I, than I realize sometimes. I'm kind of fixated on all those letters of Paul, and Peter was a pillar in the New Testament church in Jerusalem. He, uh, that, the sermon on, in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost is just... Uh, power personified. I, it just, it, it rings 
when someone becomes kind of a big deal like that, we immediately want to know, well, what about their origins? You know, we want to, it's like, uh, who, who was their coach? Where'd they come from? Who mentored them? Who, who trained them? Did they have any famous siblings? What, what, what else can we find about them? And we kind of look for their story. There's always stories of the early years describing what someone prominent around us was like. And, you know, Peter's no different he has an early, think about it, he has an early encounter with Jesus recorded in every gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record stories of Peter's early encounter, first meetings with Jesus. All four gospels, two of the stories contain the same details, so much so that they're, they're practically the same story. They don't really supplement one another, they just are the same story. It gives us three unique narratives, at least. That's not really what I remembered from the flannel graph in Sunday school. That was kind of like, it was kind of a lightning bolt story. It was like Peter's fishing, Jesus is walking along the Sea of Galilee, says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Peter drops everything and follows, kind of like a lightning bolt. It's just and, and, and my perception, it, probably clouded by my young age, was just, there was, that, was, that was just it. That was the first time. They just came by and boom, Peter drops everything and follows Jesus. And um, wow, there's four stories. Well, that, that, paints a, that paints a slight, or four, three stories uh, unique, four coverages of that. That paints a slightly uh, different picture. That story is from Matthew and Mark. The story of Luke is the one that's commonly harmonized with Matthew and Mark. But in small group, this past summer, we were reading the life of Christ, just kind of reading through. We were following the harmony of Doug Bookman, Dr. Doug Bookman, who came for our Bible conference last spring. And we were reading through his harmony, and when we got to uh, those meetings, the calling of Peter, he had Matthew and Mark's account first, and then there was a little bit of time, and he separated out Luke's account and considers it a second story. Now, that kind of made the synapses pop. I was like, what? I, I always just assumed that those would fit together. But as we were reading in small group and following along, you know, he wasn't adamant. He just encouraged us to, to check it out in his, in his notes the more we read, the more we saw the differences. And we thought, wow, this is interesting. A more protracted call for Peter. The longer we looked, the more we saw an harmonization of Luke with Matthew and Mark became kind of difficult. And I kind of adopted that view. It's like that does seem to fit. It seems to fit that this call would be of Peter's would be more protracted, more not like a lightning bolt, but maybe more like a lightning bug. You, know, you sit on the back porch. Sorry. <laughs> more like a lightning bug. They go on and they go off. And they go on and they go off. And they come and go. And it, uh, you can kind of see this in Peter. I found that personally kind of, of, of heartening. It releases the pressure to be some kind of super saint, always making these radical changes and encourages me at least to be patient, encourage us to be patient with ourselves and persistent, persistent in our walk with Christ. So let's begin 
with Simon, son of John's first encounter with Jesus. We're going to turn to John chapter 1, verses 40 to 42. That's John chapter 1, verses 40 to 42. I hope your sword drill skills are ready. I don't know if anybody does sword drills anymore. You got digital devices. I'd kind of want to pit somebody with a, with a hard copy of the Bible against somebody with a with an electronic device, and if you don't know what sword drills are, this was stock and trade when I was in junior high. You called out a reference, and who could get there first and stand up, got to read the verse. And uh, I just like, how, how, how sleek are those interfaces? We're going to be moving around. That's, that, that's uh, my point. And I'm going to try to give you context so we aren't just dropping into a text out of, out of nowhere. So the narrative portion of John's gospel begins about verse 19 and it gives us three successive days of testimony by John the Baptist and I got it I hadn't really digested this yet um, but looking through this this is three days and every day John the Baptist is on cue and he is on fire it's one day after another he really uh, I see in this exemplified the, the forerunner of Christ. The first day, he's just relentless. I am not the Christ. Who are you? I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. On the second day, it says, on the next day, then we have him testifying, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he gives uh, some detail about the baptism of Jesus and what he saw and what he witnessed. And finally, the next day, the third day, we have Behold the Lamb of God. And on that day, Andrew, with someone else who was never named, there it just says two disciples, we find out later in verse 40, they, 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 they chase down Jesus, so to speak. They're following him, and he turns and says to them, What are you seeking? And they said, Where are you staying? And he says, Come and see. And can you imagine, Andrew spent from 4 o'clock that afternoon, is what the estimated time is, until evening, just with Jesus, spending time there. So now we're at verse 40, and we're going to pick up Peter's call. Uh, excuse me a minute there. Okay, verse 40. Uh, sorry, one thing. I'm reading from the New American Standard. I know we customarily do ESV here, or that's what Matt always preaches from, and I, I just really like the New American Standard, so I'm going to be there if you're following along and something doesn't seem quite right, that's, that's, what's, that's what's happening. Okay, John chapter 1, verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter, which we know means rock. He calls him rock. Two things about Andrew, you just always have to observe. First, he's always listed, he's little brothers, take heart. Andrew was a little brother. He is always Simon Peter's brother. Almost every time he occurs, appears in the New Testament. 
The other thing, though, is much more uh, convicting. Invariably, he's bringing someone to Jesus, always bringing someone to Jesus. If it's not um, the Greeks who wanted to meet Jesus who, who come to him, it's a little lad with uh, five loaves and two fish. And uh, he uh, brings that child and his lunch to Christ. Here he brings Peter. It says uh, he found first his own brother in verse 41. Verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. This is just what Andrew does. I can't think of a more flattering portrait that anyone could paint of an individual. The next thing we see is Jesus looked at him. And this had to be quite a look because I'm thinking it would be easy to tell the story. Jesus said, you are, you know, he, we could just left the look out. But it's noted, I think there was a bit of uh, unusualness to the intensity of that gaze. Some people are known for their ability to size people up. And... Uh, the multi-billionaire Warren Buffett is one of those folks. He's known as just being like this amazing mathematician, does lots of things in his head. He used to play games with his friend on his friend's porch. He went to his friend's house because he lived on a street. Streets have cars, cars have license plates, license plates have numbers, and he would sit around and do calculations to make the sequence of the license plate numbers make sense. He, crafted, he converted that into the ability to rapidly evaluate the profitability of any investment that came along. But there are a lot of people that can do math. What, the th what, what people say separated him from all the other investors, made him a multi-billionaire, was his ability to size people up. Say in the space of about a 15, 30-minute meeting with a CEO, he could evaluate that individual's capability to be running this corporation and then make investment or withhold investment based on that evaluation. That's not what's going on here. That was a really long illustration to say, this is not what's going on here. Jesus is not looking into the future and thinking, this guy's got it. He's going to go somewhere. He's going to be somebody. He's got the it factor. He needs a new name. When Peter is brought to him, Jesus assigns a new name as a declaration of what Peter will become. Not so much a merely predictive utterance as a declaration of what Jesus will make of him. Some see this name, Rock, as representing the ultimate change in Peter's character. Others see it as reflective of his foundational role in the early church, which is correct, both. Maybe it's something else. It's not made clear necessarily in the text of Scripture that I know of. Both of those things are certainly true. Um, what's clear is this. The focus here is actually on Jesus. I know we're looking at Peter. But the focus is on Jesus who knows people thoroughly not only sees into them, but so calls them that he makes them what he calls them to be. Here's a, here's, a, here's a heavy thought. Jesus knows you and me no less than he knows Peter. He knows you. 
Like Peter, he has work for you to do. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And he's given you gifts. 1 Corinthians 12.7, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. You have been gifted to serve the common good there. The context is the church. God gives gifts to his people to serve the church. I think sometimes we look at someone like Peter and we think he's so other. God loves you. God knows you the same. He knows you deeply. He has work for you to do. He has gifts for you to use. The next step in the recorded call of Peter is probably the most well-known. There are two accounts, one in Matthew, the other in Mark, and there is a lot of resemblance. I mentioned this earlier, but here's some numbers. Matthew's account is 89 words. Mark's is 82. That's close. They have 54 words in common. 54 words in common. Depending on how you do the math, that's like uh, roughly a 60% correlation between the two stories. My thinking is that indicates a common source. There's a whole lot of theories, but boy, they must have talked to the same person. The accounts are different, so they didn't just copy one another, but I have a feeling they went to the same person to get the story. The thing to take note of there is that two gospel writers thought this event was so significant they both included it and whoever wrote their letter second knew the other one had already covered the story. I'm going to go with Matthew's account. I'm going to start in Matthew 4, 12 and 13 for the purpose of just giving us a little context. It says, Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. That's Matthew 4, 12, and 13. And John's account, the renaming of Simon, the Baptist is busy. He's, he's testifying. He's out. Here, he is imprisoned. He's not going to be released. That's how we know that account in John, among other things, came first. Second thing you want to notice here is that Jesus... Has, Jesus has moved away from Nazareth to Capernaum. Walking by the Sea of Galilee would just be right down the street. Capernaum is not a large town. It's a small fishing village on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. So we're going to pick up this call in verse 18. I'm going to tell you, if you want to flip over to Mark chapter 1, verses 16 to 20, you can either flip back and forth, or you can literally follow me from Mark, while I read from Matthew, you'll be able to see the correlation between the two stories. They're very close. Uh, I'm in Matthew 4, 18 to 22. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. 
Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called to them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. So here, the narrative opens with Jesus walking along the Sea of Galilee, seemingly alone, the crowds, you're thinking, hmm, no one's crowding around him yet. This must be early. I'm thinking this is early in his arrival in Capernaum. They haven't quite discovered him just yet, not as they will. Uh, the other thing that's interesting here, it doesn't read like he's looking for particular individuals, but we know he knows Peter and Andrew from the passage in John. And he spent time with them, and he's named... Peter, Peter, he was Simon, son of John. Um, Matthew, interestingly enough, simply states, uh, let's see, two brothers, uh, Simon, who was called Peter. No explanation at all. Does not even delve into the naming. It just says Simon, who was called Peter, and rolls on. He is focused on something else. So what are Peter and Andrew doing? Well, they're fishing. Well, why would they be fishing? Well, the text tells us they were fishermen. Fishermen fish. It's what they do. But both Matthew and Mark give us a little bit more detail. They tell us what kind of fishing they were doing. It says they were casting a net. And that information is actually even more specific than it might appear. There were three primary fishing methods in the day. And all three appear in the Gospels. There was fishing with a hook. And uh, this is how Jesus instructed Peter to pay the temple tax. In Matthew 17, 27, he said to Peter, go to the sea and throw in a hook. I'm sure there was a line attached to it. <laughs> go to the sea, throw in a hook, and he says, and the first fish you catch. I'm sure he didn't say the third or fourth, because Peter might have just kept on fishing. The first fish you catch, open his mouth, there'll be a coin there, you pay our taxes. Amazing. Fishing with a hook. There are two kinds of nets. There are dragging nets, and we'll see those shortly, and casting nets. That's what's mentioned here. The text says they were casting, and watch out, I'm going to butcher some Greek here. They were casting amphibolestron. Some Greek words are easy to say. That one sounds like you're sneezing or something. I don't know. Amphiblestron. It's the Greek words. The compounding of two words that mean cast to throw something, and, and around. It's a round net. The, the description goes like this, quote, a circular net with weights on the circumference and lines from the circumference to an opening in the middle. The net was thrown out so that it fell flat on the water, and the weights took it down to the bottom. The lines were pulled to draw in the circumference, and the fish underneath the net were trapped. The net was typically cast while standing in shallower water. So you could be, you wouldn't, have, you wouldn't probably cast it from the shore, but you could kind of wade out ankle deep, waist deep, as long as you had room to move. It could, of course, be cast from a boat, but it was typically cast from the edge. You may have seen, these nets are still in use, and particularly, I think, in third world countries, and you can still see images. I didn't go there. 
uh, but I'm really, I, I'm tempted, I, I'm probably going to hunt down a YouTube because I'll bet there's one out there. The art of throwing these nets is not easily mastered from what I understand. So they're there, they're casting the net, and Jesus comes by and says, follow me. The footnote in my NASB translation says, literally, come here after me. Another commentator wanted to rephrase it this way, here after me. Jesus' approach here just cuts across the grain of Jewish tradition. In Judaism, a disciple chose his rabbi. Rabbis did not go out calling disciples. Jesus is doing something completely different. In Judaism, the disciple chose his rabbi, and it just adds another wrinkle to me when Jesus says, you have not chosen me. We, we know these calling, but it, it, it just contrasts him again with the culture. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. That's a deep meaning. There's also just a flat service meaning there. I went out and chose you. The disciple would then dedicate himself to study at the feet of the rabbi, likely would give up home and profession for a season and travel with the rabbi, working by day and putting wages in a common bag. That's how the rabbi lived. The aim of the disciple, in this case, was to increase knowledge of the law, which would eventually qualify the student to become a rabbi himself. I want to think, how different is that from what Jesus has in mind for these men? I wonder if they're working from this mindset of what is happening here. Jesus, the teacher, is calling us. What is he calling us to? Well, their world of reference is this picture. But Jesus obviously has something different in mind. And I really love the way Howard Hendricks likes to describe this. He, he, he likes uh, Mark 4, and he says, uh, talks about the disciples in Mark 4. First, they hear the lectures on faith. And then Jesus puts them into the laboratory for a little life application experience. We know this is the miracle of the stilling of the storm. It was a test. Jesus concludes the test with two questions. Why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? They just heard the great lectures on faith. That's in Mark 4.40. And I love, Hendricks finishes it out. He says, and they got an F, and it wasn't for faith. <laughs> they failed the test. Um, this is not sit at my feet and learn from me, the rabbi, and then go work and put some money in my common bag. It's not the usual program that they would have grown up around. Being professional fishermen, thoughts of being a rabbi were probably non-existent for them anyway. Being men of Jewish faith, looking, hoping, waiting for the Messiah, most certainly was. Jesus says to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me. And I, I will make you fishers of men. 
That's an interesting phrase. It's utterly original to our Lord. They, you, you, the, the, the commentators will tell you, you can, you can read ancient literature till the cows come home. You will not find anyone using this type of analogy. It was coined, obviously, by Jesus to, re, to reach in a unique way into the hearts of these fishermen and call them to a new life. It's a little bit cryptic phrase. It's not completely clear what this is going to mean or be, but they could probably infer that fishing for men was going to be a greater cause than fishing for fish. Steve Jobs, the CEO, founder, founder, was the CEO, founder of Apple, was looking for a CEO. This is back in the 80s, in the early days. He wanted to get out of the, that position, and he was going to move himself into another part of the company he founded, and he wanted a, wanted a CEO to run Apple for him. He thought he'd found his guy in the head of PepsiCo. His closing pitch, which was effective, went something like this. You can sell sugar water for the rest of your life. Or you can come with me and change the world. If I was the head of CEO, I, 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 whoa, I'm selling sugar water. Oh, there's got to be something better to do. Come with me and change the world. Well, Apple has brought, I can't deny, significant change to the world. Unfortunately, it can only be described as change, just change. To affect real change, you have to change the hearts of men, as only God can. This is the kind of change that Jesus was calling the disciples to. Follow me. Not for a pleasant stroll on the seashore, but for a life immersed in discipleship that will not end in fishing for fish, but for men. Men you will bring into relationship with the living God. You ever think about our ministry? That, that's, that's what we, we are fishing for men. Other people in the world are doing things that might look significant, changing, altering. But we have been called, you have been called, I have been called to fish, fish for men, to bring people into a relationship with God. Well, their response was immediate. Verse 20, immediately they left their nets and followed him. They did not know what would result from this moment. They couldn't have. But the commitment wasn't as blind as it sometimes is presented. We've already seen what in John's gospel, Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist, seeking the Messiah, thought he'd found him, spent time with him. Simon, son of John, has been renamed Rock. That would have pushed the relationship beyond the superficial. Jesus is now living in Capernaum. It's a small fishing village. He's been there for a period of months. They probably went to the same synagogue. So the commitment was not blind. And... It was not casual either. While it did, mean, did not mean selling all their earthly possessions and breaking every earthly tie, it did mean leaving the kind of life they had been living. You notice in verse 20, it says, they left their nets. That's plural. They were casting a net. They left their nets. It meant more than just putting down their work for a moment. This was a call to discipleship, and they didn't take it lightly. 
They followed immediately and wholeheartedly. Verses 21 and 22 record the call of James and John. In the interest of time, we're going to stick with our subject, Peter, but there's a couple of things there to point out. They were fishermen along with their father, and they were in their boat. Their response to the call of Christ was the same. It was immediate, and they left their boat, but not only their boat. It says they left their father also. You want to make note here, they didn't leave their father to flounder. In Mark's account, he tells us there were hired men. They had hired hands. That's also a point of observation you want to make. This was not some small-time, one-trick pony fishing operation. There were multiple boats, nets, which were not cheap. Hours of practice to use these things, to maintain them. And hired hands. We have no reason to think that the business wasn't lucrative and that they were quite skilled at it. They were capable men. They were not down and outers. They weren't leaving nothing. Oh, finally, something I can grab onto. They left something. Peter mentions that later to Christ in all three synoptic gospels. We have left everything to follow you. They left something. Our last text is Luke's. Luke 5, 1 to 11. And this is the one I would like to title Recall because I really actually think it is a separate event that happens a few days later. Luke 5, 1 through 11. Quickly, the context in Luke, in his sequence, is John has been baptized, tempted in the wilderness by the devil, and begun his public ministry. And then in Luke 4, chapter 14, if you want to Scan down there, it says, And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and the news about him spread throughout the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. So he's traveling and teaching. This is the context. He's traveling and teaching. His home base is Capernaum, and he's been in Capernaum. He went there from Nazareth. He was rejected in his hometown. Ultimately, as he's traveling, he comes back to Capernaum. In Capernaum, he casts out a demon while at the synagogue, everyone is amazed. Everyone is amazed at his teaching and his authority. And then in verse 38, this really wakes you up. I'm looking at Peter's call and I'm going, oh, wow, I didn't realize that. He got up, left the synagogue, and entered Simon's home. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked him to help her. This is where Peter heals his mother-in-law. Excuse me. (laughs) Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. If you keep reading, you find that that evening, half the town basically came to Simon Peter's house, and Jesus healed a lot of folks. Now, that's significant, at least in chronology sense, because if you look at Matthew, in his account, uh, there's the call, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. After that, he tells the story of the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. Here in Luke, you get the healing of Peter's mother-in-law and then the calling that happens in Luke. Now, to be fair, there's no commentator or scholar who regards the Gospels as strictly chronological, but I feel like I can't quite ignore that either. That seems like 
not accidental. I, you know, they always disclaim the chronology of the Gospels, but I have noticed that the resurrection always occurs at the end of every one of them. Have you noticed that too? Okay, so I don't think that's... I, it, it fits the idea of separating the two calls anyway. The real indication, though, that this is a recall comes by direct comparison of the three texts. And as we read through, you will want to notice, first off, that it is the same location and the same people. Well, of course it would be. They weren't moving their fishing operation around, right? But the narrative, the narrative is quite different. Same location, same people, a unique narrative. So Luke 5, 1 through 11. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake Gennesaret and he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets and he got into one of the boats which was Simon's and asked him to put out a little way from the land and he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. So the first thing you notice there is the crowd. They're doing two things. They are multitaskers. They are pressing around him. He's, Jesus is surrounded. They are pressing and listening. They are listening to the word of God. Pressing and listening. You might, there might be a few elbows, a few, some people jockeying for position. I don't know if you've ever been a crowd like that where people trying to get to the front to hear what they want to hear. You immediately have to assume this is going to be a fairly good-sized crowd. Otherwise, there would be no need to, to press and to push and to try to get closer, what is Jesus doing? He is standing. Now, that's unusual. Teachers usually sat when they taught in the synagogue. That was a standard position. They would sit down and they would teach. The fact that he's standing tells you he's being pressed for space. Lake Gennesaret, just to be clear, that's just another name for the Sea of Galilee. It's called by four different names in Scripture uh, sea of Chinnereth is an Old Testament name. John calls it the Sea of Tiberias. Here, Lake Gennesaret, uh, these are all names for the Sea of Galilee, so we're in the right place. But here we have a logistical problem. Lots of people pressing, very little space. On a practical level, Jesus is just, he's a creative problem solver. He's flexible. We don't have to do things the same way every time. He looks at the situation, surveys, and goes, there's empty boats, the fishermen are here, I need some space. So he's thinking, let's see, I sit down in the boat, I push out from the shore, the water enhances the acoustics, people can hear better, and so he sets about this. He uses this, I think I've picked up two other times in the New Testament. I didn't totally search that out, but this wasn't just a one-time deal. This might be the first time, but uh, a technique Jesus used to uh, keep himself uh, at a comfortable distance from the crowd so everyone could hear and he could teach. Uh, I'm thinking Jesus by this time would have likely known whose boat he was getting into. You know, when you start a job somewhere and you pull into the parking lot. After a while, you go, oh, Fred's here today. And how do you know Fred's there? Well, that's his car over there. Uh, he sees the boat, and I'm thinking, 
he probably knows whose boat he's getting into and he already has in mind what he's going to do. Let's take a minute here now and just look at the contrast between Matthew and Mark's account and, uh, and Luke. Luke, we have Jesus standing, teaching, and the crowd is pressing around him. Versus Mark, he is walking, we'll just say at least unencumbered, seemingly alone, but certainly not encumbered, and calling out directly immediately to fishermen. Here in Luke, Peter and Andrew are washing their nets, but in Matthew and Mark, they are casting a circular net. Now, I have to say, so to me, those things are compelling, but you have to allow for the fact that harmonization is a difficult thing to do, and these events could be sequenced in such a way that they probably could actually be one account, but it just seems to me natural to want to separate these two as separate accounts. So, rejoining the text in verse 4, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let the nets, let down the nets. This is great. Peter's a professional fisherman. He knows the habits of fish. Jesus is a carpenter. Carpenters don't tell fishermen how to fish. Fishermen know that fish feed near the surface during the night, and when daylight comes, they retreat back to the depths of the lake. Every fisherman on the Sea of Galilee knew this. I wonder if Peter was a little self-conscious. What are people, people think I'm crazy. Peter knows this, but this is Jesus making the request, and that changes everything. Jesus taught with authority. Jesus cast out demons at the synagogue. Jesus healed my mother-in-law. Jesus healed numerable people at my doorstep that same evening. So he addresses Jesus as master, I think, stating his submission right at the beginning. Master, we worked hard all night. Fishing is backbreaking work. Hauling nets all night, catching nothing, washing the nets in the morning. But we have to tip our hat to Peter. He is willing to obey even when he is exhausted and it does not make sense. Lean not on your own understanding. That just Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 just came to my mind. He's not leaning on his own understanding. So verse 6, when they had done this, it was like, let the nets down for a catch, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them, and they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. Can you imagine the shock? We are fishing at the wrong time in the place where we fished like dogs last night and caught nothing. Like two plus two equals 17. I didn't know. (laughs) That's impossible. The synapses have to have stopped firing. It's astounding. So many fish, two boats are sinking, and these aren't small boats. You'll notice words like we and they are being used. This isn't a little one-man dinghy. This is a boat that at least holds a couple of folks, if not three or four. 
I'm pretty sure this never happened before. I think, I think Peter's sort of out of his mind. You know, if you want to retire on the way, you want to go out on top, this is the time to retire from fishing. So going out on top is not necessarily what Jesus has in mind, but Peter retiring from fishing is. It's time to retire. It's time to hang up your net once and for all. And Peter's response is from the heart, absolutely priceless. But when Peter saw, when Simon Peter, excuse me, but when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. When you were a kid, you knew you were in trouble when you heard your middle name, right? I won't say my middle name. Okay, I will. Bruce Lee? Yeah, sorry. They, he hadn't come on the scene yet. When I heard that, I knew I was in trouble. Um, this is the only time. This is, this is interesting. This is the only time Luke ever says, Simon Peter. Other people combine those, but this is the only time Luke says, but when Simon Peter saw that, the impact of the miracle on Peter was colossal. Peter knew fishing, consequently knew that what this haul implied. No amount of fishing skill or knowledge or equipment or technique could make this happen. Peter understands who he is dealing with all of a sudden at a much deeper level. And he confesses who he is. He calls Jesus Lord and himself a sinful man. The contrast has become very clear in his mind. He is not worthy. And did you catch the transition? This is really, this is just mind-popping for me when I, when, I, when I saw this. Before he let down the nets, Peter called Jesus Master. He called him Master. After the catch, he calls him Lord. Doesn't seem like too big a deal. Well, the significance is this. Master is used by Luke as an equivalent for rabbi, you know, teacher. But repeatedly in the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament, repeatedly in the Septuagint, Lord is used as an equivalent for God. Peter's understanding has been transformed. His reaction calls to mind Isaiah's reaction during his vision of the Lord in Isaiah 6. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two they covered their face, two their feet, two they flew. And they called out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled and a voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Peter was cut to the heart. 
He knew who he was dealing with and he knew who he was. I'm sure you didn't miss the fact that the amazement that seized Peter also gripped his companions. His partners in the fishing enterprise, James and John, it would appear that everyone was left speechless, of course, except for Peter. But he made the good confession, did he not? Continuing, and Jesus said to Simon, do not fear, from now on you will be catching men. Do not fear, from now on you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Jesus immediately seeks to reassure Peter. He recognizes he's been shaken. And his words, best understood, stop being afraid. Stop being afraid. I think they were spoken as words of comfort, not a rebuke. Stop being afraid. The next thing you see here is the call. And it's, it, it, earlier he said, I will make you fishers of men. This time the words seem more definite, a little bit more like a settled matter. From now on. You got the King James, you got a nice from henceforth. From henceforth. From now on, you will be catching men. Effectively, Peter, I'm turning your page. We're taking a new direction. The phrase catching men is interestingly precise. Jesus' word there is unique fishing at least commercial fishing doesn't end well for the fish it's not catch and release it's catch and process but the word jesus used here is zogreo it's the bringing together of two words to catch to take by hunting and a living creature so if you did a real blunt brutal phrasing of this it might sound like you're going to live catch men. This is not to take their life. This is to give them life. The grammar indicates that this will be a habitual practice going forward. This is what we're going to do from now on. This is not a one-shot deal. You're going to catch men and catch men and you're going to catch men. That's your new life I love the following phrase, when they had brought their boats to land. You know that took a little bit of time and effort. Two boats, almost sinking, nets to the point of breaking. That might take a little doing. They left everything, it says. When they brought, after they brought their boats to land, they left everything. Prior, they left their nets. Now we are describing this as everything. That could just be a difference between Luke's description and another, but Luke makes it plain. We're, we're, we're leaving it all. We're going to leave the whole thing, the whole shoot and match, the whole shebang, the whole operation. The sons of Zebedee left their father in the boat with the hired men. Before they had left their nets, now it's everything. Luke gives you the blanket, Everything. Which Peter affirms, as I said earlier, Lord, we have left everything to follow you. That statement is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. If you're asking me right now, so what about all those fish? I know you're a fisherman. What about all those fish? Well, there is Zebedee and the hired men to process and sell all those fish. Seeing the way the Lord has provided would certainly ease the mind of a disciple who's leaving 
his family and his family business. God will take care of them. I'm going to leave a really nice starting point for them. I want to put a little bit of an exclamation point on this. The call of Peter, we got to pay a visit to the second miracle catch of fish because it's uniquely connected. You may turn with me to John's restoration of Peter, Apostle John's restoration of Peter, telling of the restoration of Peter. I'm going to get it right. John 21, verse 3. 21, verse 3. John 21, verse 3. You're going to see the parallel between this miracle catch and the prior miracle catch. Simon Peter said to them, now this is, Christ has been resurrected. Peter's denied the Lord three times. This is prior to the Lord's restoration of Peter. And you can see he's at low ebb. And he's not sure what to do. And what do fishermen do when they don't know what to do? They fish. He says, I'm going fishing They said to him, we will also come with you. (laughs) Just like they went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. They fished all night and caught nothing again. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus, so Jesus called to them, children, you do not have any fish, do you? You could have said, you didn't catch anything, did you? (laughs) Children, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, no. And he said, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find a catch. So they cast and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. They later were told 153 fish in this net. Therefore, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord And you know what Peter's going to do. So when Peter heard that, it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had stripped for work, threw himself into the sea and swam to shore. And then what happens there is the restoration of Peter by Jesus. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Tend my lambs. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. At the end of the conversation comes this. Truly I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now he said this, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So seeing him, this is John, so seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, what what about this man? What about him? Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Wow, I, I just, I can't, the, 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 the book ending of that, the, the, that just has to call to mind all that moment and those experiences early in ministry. And Jesus said, nothing's changed. Follow me. We're fishing for men. We're gonna be fishing for men. 
So the question, what does this mean to us? Well, if you know Christ, I would say be encouraged. Be encouraged. God takes flawed individuals whose trajectory is not like a rocket, but maybe moving in poor directions sometimes, and he makes them. We get into trouble when we try to make ourselves. But if anyone had cause to lose hope, to quit, to bail out, that would be Peter. But uh, recently, we've heard in this service, and it's called to my mind, Philippians 1.6, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. God carried Peter. He's going to carry you to completion. What are we to do? What's our responsibility? Jesus is at work in us. What are we to do? Luke 9, 23 and 24 has the answer. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Forever who wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever wishes to lose his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. You might be thinking, I'm weighed down by a lot of struggles. You don't understand how far I have to go. For that, I think we have the words of Paul. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus Somehow seemingly working for a reward seems like, oh, I should be motivated by better things. But we are reminded more than once. Here's Paul from Galatians. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time, we will reap if we do not grow weary. We will reap if we do not grow weary. Well, I have one last story I want to tell you to illustrate, I think, this point that I think this brings to us well. It's the story of a renowned concert pianist named Paderewski. Um, He was also Poland's prime minister. He was a great concert pianist, though. And after he left the prime ministership, he returned to playing concerts. A mother hoping to inspire greater progress at the piano for her boy, bought tickets for a Paderewski performance. They got wonderful seats near the front. Her son would be able to see the master's hands flying up and down the keyboard of the sleek, black, grand Steinway piano parked on stage and waiting. But mom got a little busy and distracted talking to some friends. We know that happens. And the boy slipped away. The stage lights came up at the start of the concert and then everyone, including mom, noticed a young boy sitting at the piano. He was playing Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. Mom panicked, as we all would, but Paderewski seized the moment. He came quietly from off stage, stepped up behind the boy and said, Don't quit. 
keep playing. He then reached around the boy with his left hand and began filling in a bass part. And then he reached around on the other side and added a running obligato. The audience was dazzled. The young boy gave what he had. His five loaves and two fishes. Twinkle, twinkle, little star. Paderewski turned it into concert music. I think it illustrates so well what our task is. Be faithful. Be faithful. Don't quit. Keep playing. Let's pray. Father, we err on on both sides of this equation. Sometimes we become confident. In those moments, Lord, I just pray that you would show us our weakness because you have told us when we are weak, then we are strong. But Lord, sometimes we are weighed down and our cares are, are deep, our struggles are heavy. And in those moments, Lord, we know you remember that we are but dust. Lord, strengthen, strengthen us. Grant us your strength. Help us to lean into Christ and the strength he provides and be faithful, be faithful. We ask this, Lord, we ask these things that you would be glorified with our lives. These things we ask in Jesus' name, amen. As we respond to God's word, we want to sing a song that reminds us that even our promise to follow him is assisted by him. Please stand as we sing. Yeah.
as we come to the conclusion of our time together, just want to thank you for joining us today and remind you that you are invited to join us this evening as we gather for worship and continue our study in the book of Titus. As we part company, may you go with this blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Go in his peace.